Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Amidst accelerating environmental change and intense urbanisation, there is growing enthusiasm for building sustainable and natural cities. Yet, when a flourishing eco-futuristic urban imaginary is enacted, it is often driven by a specific version of sustainability that is tied to high-tech futurism and persistent economic growth. In a Southeast Asian context, at least, no city or country better encapsulates this than Singapore. But pursuit of a singular narrative of progress has very specific consequences, particularly when that progress benefits some but not all beings. To shed more light on the implications of Singapore's growth fetish and its relationship with humans and non-humans, I am joined by Dr. Jamie Wang. Jamie is a 2021 Sydney Southeast Asia Centre Writing Fellow and a research affiliate in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. She has a PhD in Environmental Humanities and Cultural Studies from the University of Sydney. And her interdisciplinary research focuses on the intersections of environmental humanities, urban geography, more than human studies and sustainable development in the context of planetary urbanism, climate change and environmental justice. Jamie is also a writer and a poet and is interested in multidisciplinary, collaborative and sustainable story making towards the opening of other kinds of possible futures. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us on SEAC Stories. That was such a lovely introduction. Thank you. Oh, well, your, your research is absolutely fascinating and it's so exciting to be talking about it. And we are here to talk about your recent project, which is called Reimagining the More Than Human Cities, Stories of Singapore, which looks at multifaceted pressing urban environmental issues from urban greenery to housing development projects, um, transportation, water infrastructure and urban agriculture. I actually took some students to Singapore for a field school in 2019, which was looking at water. And one of the sites we visited was the Gardens by the Bay, which is, you know, such a popular tourist site and also a very futuristic imagining of life in a beautiful decorative bubble. And for me, it really captured, I think, the ideas that your research is discussing, which is this high-tech capitalist mode of urban sustainable development. Is Gardens by the Bay a good example of this or are there some other examples you can give us in the Singaporean context? I think Gardens by the Bay is definitely one of the very good examples. I think it is a good example for good reason as well. Some of the many eco-development projects there, Gardens by the Bay is probably the most visible one on the global stage. In addition to this, I have some examples here uh, that is relating to Singapore's high-tech capitalist approach. One is relating to the water production. So that is also very interesting that you said you actually organized a tour group to that before. And the other examples explores the urban farming. So when I was there, I visited a new water center. So new water is Singapore's own brand of high-grade reclaimed water. So it actually goes through a very stringent and layered water purification process. This includes microfiltration, reverse osmosis, and ultraviolet disinfection. So along with seawater desalination, these are now the most energy and capital-intensive way of water production there. And in recent years, I think new water and seawater desalination 
have also been positioned by the city-state as their response uh, to accelerating impacts of climate change and uncertainty of geopolitical issues. So they have been also advocated as a kind of future-proof and a sustainable water source that says as a climate resistant. So one thing that is very interesting is a new water is actually primarily supplied to water-intensive industries. So some of these industries include power generation and oil refinery. They have also been used for air conditioning cooling towers. So despite the already high water consumption level, by 2060, Singapore's water usage is actually projected to are set to double, of which 70% is actually from industry use. So the other thing that I'm not sure, I guess little is known that the city island actually also has the third largest complex of petrochemical refineries in the world. So you can see a bit of dynamic here that it is precisely these very thirsty industries that also contribute to this country's very strong financial position that affording it this luxury producing very expensive and energy consuming water. For me, it becomes clear that there is this inextractable link between its oil refinery industry and water production and the fact that now its total energy and water consumption are on the rise. And because they're very energy intensive, so some of these environmental costs have also been transferred to elsewhere. Yeah, I think water is such a great example in the Singaporean context because you've mentioned the strategic considerations as well with water. For a long time, Singapore relied on importing its water from the Malay Peninsula and there's a push to reduce their reliance on that imported water. And so I did take the students to the new water facility as well. And you said that a lot of that recycled water is used for industry. But one of the highlights of the field school, I suppose, was when all the students were presented with a bottle of recycled water and given the opportunity to drink it, which they all did, having seen the very sophisticated technologies used to purify it. You know, in this push to be more sustainable with their water usage, as you say, they're relying much more heavily on other forms of energy. Yeah, so you are absolutely right. So what's happening now is right now they're actually blending 1% of new water in the reservoir. So that can be used as a consumption one. So that's only 1%. So one of the reasons that this is actually being used for industrial is the purity of new water. I don't know if you know, it's actually higher uh, than tap water. So for some of the industrial plants, they actually need a very pure water. When my experience, when I was at a new water center, the water itself, the presence of the water itself is actually really minimal. So what they have presented are a lot of machines, are a lot of technology they use. So there is a bit of very interesting dynamics that you are visiting a water production center, yet you see very minimal water. So they are sort of being backgrounded. I think it's only at the end of the tour that they give you the souvenir type of water. Is that correct? Or you were given during right. that? Yeah. No, yeah. You, you only get it. And that's a really interesting observation. So they're really foregrounding this technological, very sophisticated technological intervention. It's almost a small part of the bigger story that they're trying to communicate. Yeah, it's being background a little bit. And I think it's a bit like in the past, in 19th century, people used to go all the way to visit the dam. And now this new water visitor center is sort of um, revived the interest in humans' time and in terms of water. So tell us about urban farming in the Singaporean context, because of course, there's a lot of reclaimed land, but it is only a small city state. Where does this urban farming take place? 
in 2017, the Singaporean government actually unveiled a farm transformation map. So this is a very highly technological-driven initiative. So the plan itself focuses on the prospect of very intensive, very high-productivity farming, which, and in particular, they include indoor farming or vertical farming and controlled farming that is pest-free, soil-free, and dust-free. And these kinds of indoor farming also include indoor fisheries, where fish are actually bred and grow in high-rise complexes. So you can imagine those fish travel between the floors through tubes. Yeah, so it is, I'm not sure if it's more utopian or dystopian, but when I was there, I was actually told that this type of fish farming is better for the environment and better for consumers. And some of the reason is because the sea is now very polluted. So if you keep the fish indoor, that actually reduces the need to feed them antibiotics. And the other reason that I've been told is because some of the traditional coastal fish farming, the method they use can cause more pollution. So in this case, you can see this type of farming that's very isolated farming actually being positioned as a way to respond to climate change, to urbanization. That is a strange image of the fish transitioning between different floors of an apartment building. So in your work, you are trying to develop ways of rethinking, reseeing, and restoring Singapore from their other cities by foregrounding their more than human worlds. So can you talk us through these categories of human, non-human, and more than human? I'm sure, of course, that question is really good because I think you have mentioned as well the term of more than human, more than human words now have been seen quite often in the broad disciplines and the fields. So I'm probably not going to discuss too much about what are humans, what are non-humans. So more than human words actually encompass animals, plants, climates, elements, and humans. And what is very important here is more than human words, it's not just another word to replace or to exchange for non-humans or natures or other than humans. Rather, this term is to try to draw out and foreground the relationship between entities and the entanglements between biotic and abiotic elements. So in my work that is titled Reimagining the More Than Human City, what I look at is the diverse human and more than human elements, how they co-shape and co-inhabit city and their social, cultural and economy relations. And it is also to seek ways to decenter human exceptionalism through thinking of the urban in a broad, more than human world. I'm not sure if that answers a little bit about your question. Yeah, that's really great, Jamie, because I think, as you say, these are terms that we're hearing more and more. And, you know, I don't think we've ever taken the opportunity to sort of explore them in the SEAC Stories podcast. So I think you're a great person to do that for us. Thank you. Can you tell us how these elements coexist in Singapore? Is there conflict? Is there a forced harmony? Or is there something else going on altogether? I think in Singapore's pursuit of sustainable and livable and a very green green city, it often uh, presents an image of this very harmonious coexistence of humans and non-humans. Recently, David Attenborough has a documentary called Wild City that is featured Singapore. So in this documentary, this reverend wildlife narrator was actually really amazed by the abundant wildlife in the small city state. So if you watch Wild City, you would actually be guided by him and then you will be introduced to a group of otters, chickens and various kinds of birds. 
and the movement of these animals, this urban wildlife, then dramatically juxtaposed with this intensely urbanized city and the skyline. And in Singapore, some of the many buildings there are also covered by greeneries. And I think if you look closely as well, in this seemingly harmonious techno-futuristic green scene, there are more complex stories. And what I'm particularly interested in is the politics of inclusion and exclusion at work. So, for example, how have natures been imagined and co-constructed by humans and non-humans? Which natures have been brought to the fore to satisfy whose desire, at what expense? And as well, at the same time, what have been backgrounded and cast in the shadow? So some of the examples I can give here is the macaques. So there have been quite a bit of contention between the people who live in the condominiums that are very close to the forest because they enjoy the view, they enjoy the fresh air, but yet they do not really welcome the visit of the macaques. So these type of issues have led to the killing of the macaques. I also want to take a step back and look a bit into the past. Singapore has some of the most intensive urbanization process in the world. So during this process itself, that we have seen the clearance of the greenery, the clearance of mangrove forests for different purpose, and even now the tombs are continued to be exhumed to make way for development. So I think what I certainly do not wish to present here is something really binary, something bad or something good. But rather, I think what I try to suggest is from those excluded urban wilds and to the disappearing shorelines, there are much more complex stories in Singapore's pursuit of this very sustainable and a very livable city. And I also think either a city in a garden, which Singapore has positioned itself to be, or a city in the nature, which is recently they changed it, they sort of upgraded. I think these kinds of urban imaginary are really ultimately an invitation to humans to learn to situate ourselves in a broader, more human world. And therefore, it is also really important to remember that a coexistence or multiplicity is not a mere synchronization. So we need to anticipate and we need to prepare for conflicts. And we also need to respect for the prospects that we need to learn to live uncomfortably in this very increasingly cohabited space. Absolutely. So, I mean, that kind of brings me to my next question. Your field site is Singapore for this project, but can you share with us with us how thinking about these different elements within the context of Singapore might help us think or prepare better for a sustainable urban future? What I want to first say is I have learned so much in the past years from the humans and the humans there. So among these learnings and thinking would have guided me is a question of what the consequences and ethical implications are in pursuing this certain kind of sustainable future that are tied to economic growth and technology solutions, and at the same time, still enable this ongoing and evenly distributed precarity among humans and non-humans. And I'm also really interested in what's the alternative ways to open this more capacious, uh, more inclusive and relational way of understanding of urban environment. So with this in mind, there are a few things that we perhaps can learn, and I've certainly learned. One is to respect the limit. During the modernization process, Singapore is known or even parading its ability to overcome the limit. Uh, for example, the land reclamation I just mentioned to overcome its perceived spatial limitation. And also right now in Singapore, as well as in many other countries, 
there is this recent pursuit of eco-modernization, which means it is believed that there is no need to slow down the path of urbanization thanks to sustainable technology. And as a result of this, in the process of this, there has been more determined push to overcome the ecological limits. And I think some of these have been shown in the examples I just mentioned about the rise of urban farming, as well as new water and seawater desalination. So these type of intensification are really rooted in a disregard for ecological limits, or at least in the sense that these limits might be very readily be overcome. So this is the first thing I wanted to say here is to really understand and really to respect the limits. And the other thing I've learned from there that certainly I believe may be beneficiary to other countries and for Singapore them as well, is sometimes environmental and the sustainable solutions somewhat being taken for granted and somehow being reduced and framed as a singular carbon emission issues. I'll give an example here that will probably better explain what I mean. So in my analysis of urban transportation, uh, one of the case studies I look at is the CRL line. So CRL line is this newly, is this new proposed train line, a cross island train line that once completed, part of this train line will actually go underneath the central reserve, which is the largest reserve now remaining in the city state. So one of the key rhetoric that the government has used in their discussions with diverse environmental group and the concerned public is that CRL is a kind of sustained mode of transportation because it's a public transport and in some ways it has a lower carbon emission perhaps comparing to private cars. But what's happening is in this kind of framing, many ecological implications and the uncertainty of the environmental impacts of building this train line have been backgrounded. And the related environmental consequences are somehow being portrayed as necessary costs, or they can be mitigated through scientific ways or engineering ways, or they just plainly being placed in the shadows. So I think as a result, the dynamics of sustainability, the term of sustainability and the practice of sustainability are very dangerous to reduce. So one thing I've learned is engaging with or developing sustainable solutions, it is essential to have more serious discussions on the definitions of some powerful terms, such as local care, sustainability, uh, these kind of expressions and how they matter to both humans and non-humans. The last thing I want to say is that what is also really essential to learn is how various humans and non-humans actually resist and they subvert certain dominant imaginary. So there are messier urban natures and there are more complex socio-ecological connectivity that actually exist and are flourishing these gaps. So for me, it is to attend to this uncontrollable aspect of the city. One thing I did want to ask you was, you know, many of us would be familiar with the Singapore story, which is the name of Lee Kuan Yew's book about his life and predicated on this idea of Singapore rising up to meet the challenges amidst great adversity, security, geographic, historical challenges. To what extent does your work align with Singapore's vision for itself as this futuristic city, as a city that through technology, through struggle, can always overcome? I think the Singapore story that you mentioned here, the Singapore story that perhaps has been told and retold, is the story of a very contemporary Singapore. 
So it often started from the independence from the British colonial rule in 1963, uh, then the independence from Malaysia government in 1965. So as you said, these stories are very compressed, and they're also often told in a very linear way. And also this nation-building story is often inter- interwoven with the rise of the PAP and the stories with Lee Kuan Yew. And what made me thinking, first of all, is what enabled this type of story? What made this story so attractive that being told and retold and start to take a life on its own? What enabled this story is this very, is this top-down policy approach for planning and this ethos of control and this desire for velocity, perhaps, and this firm belief that the future needs to be meticulously planned and also maybe in some other ways to be contained. What I'm more interested in my work is, of course, the story itself, because for me to understand the present, the future, it's always to look into the past and the future, past and present is always entangled. But what more fascinates me is how Singapore's development and its recent pursuit of eco-modernized world and how have they been co-shaped by nature's and what are some of mutually reinformed control and dominance over nature's and the humans. I'm personally really interested in your work and how it touches on biocultural heritage and its entanglement with memory and forgetting. So I'm interested whether this is about forgetting where Singapore has come from and instead focusing on where it is going. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this Singapore director and her name is Tan Ping Ping. Yes. She has a couple of really great movies. One of the movies is called Home, which is talking about the exhumation of the tombs. And what is very interesting in her movie is rather than dwell on this this sadness, she was almost talking about this taken for granted, people's taking for granted of this life, this very transient life that they have to always have to change. And there was one particular thing that I really remembered is, and because everything gets smaller, you were given less space to mourn for the dead, to make your connection, but people just seem to get used to it. They try to squeeze in this smaller place. They try to still remember, hold on to something in this very constrained environment. Then they move on. And in one of the other movies, is she also talking about the future? So the movie actually has a few stories. She interviewed a few people. So there were some expats there, but who have lived there for a long, long time. There was this young archaeologist as well and some other people. She interviewed them in terms of how they remember, how they forget. So there was this particular scene of this young archaeologist in a forest. So he was looking for something. But there was also a very fundamental sense of loss that he doesn't even know or his team. They are not really sure what they are looking for. When I was in Singapore, there's this one particular word. There are two words that were very, very big. One is nostalgia. The other is kampong. It seems like there was a memory boom. Uh, there was a desire for people to nostalgia for certain types of life in kampong. So that you can see there is this yearning uh, to remember. But when I interviewed the younger generation there, and when I interviewed the elder generation there, I find that the thing they would like to remember is also very, very different. And because, you know, as a part of urbanization process, and because of demolition of the urban forest, of the kampong, people remember different things. The elder generation still sort of remember uh, what their life used to be like in kampong or in other ways. Like, for example, there are some indigenous people I speak to there are from Ireland. So they remember their mode of life. But when I interviewed some younger generations there, 
there was this sense that they are not even very clear what they want to remember, but the desire is still there. There's something they want to hold onto. So in my work, I actually developed this term, this concept I call double erasure. So this is really looking at how the demolishing and how the clearance of the environment that ultimately impacts the memory, the culture, like what you just said, the biocultural loss. I think what you're doing is so interesting in thinking about how Singapore thinks of itself and is positioning itself for the future by considering the environment and the more than human world within that storytelling. I've seen and heard these ideas around Singapore's desire to struggle and to overcome um, articulated through different disciplinary perspectives and it's really wonderful to hear it from an environmental humanities or sort of cultural studies perspective. So Jamie, I really want to thank you for sharing your work with us today and to wish you all the best with your SEAC Writing Fellowship project, which we look forward to seeing when it's published. Natalie, thank you so much for your patience and for your guidance. <laughs> My great pleasure. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.